0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we explore one of the most important cases of the current Supreme Court term, United States versus Texas, in which Texas and 25 other states are challenging the legality of President Obama's deferred deportation program for some U.S. residents living in this country illegally. Joining me to discuss the statutory and constitutional issues in this case and to review Monday's oral arguments at the Supreme Court are two of America's leading experts in this field. Josh Blackman is an associate professor of law at the South Texas College of Law. Christina Rodriguez is the Leighton Homer-Serbeck professor of law at Yale Law School. Josh and Christina We're here at the National Constitution Center for a superb town hall program on this case in February, joined by Nick Rosencrantz and Adam Cox. And you can watch that event at constitutioncenter.org or listen to it on our great companion podcast live at America's Town Hall. Josh, Christina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank
1: you for having us.
0: Wonderful. Um, Before I start, I have to stress note my exquisite diction in, pr- in pronouncing the word constitutional. Uh, a listener uh, wrote in and said I was saying constitutional. So now you're going to have only the finest elocution from the National Constitution Center. Uh, uh try to
1: follow suit.
0: Thank you. It's, it's a high the bar. The
2: hardest word to say is prosecutorial discretion. That's <laughs> a, it trips me every time.
0: Nicely said. Well, I
2: practice on the mirror.
0: I'm so glad. Well, we'll say it lots of times in this podcast. Um, uh, and we're going to begin uh, by jumping right in. Christina, um, there are uh, a number of issues in this complicated case, but it boils down to the question of whether President Obama acted legally. Uh, when he issued this deferred action for parents of Americans and lawful permanent residents called DAPA, which would potentially change the status of almost 5.3 million illegal immigrants living in the United States. What is the administration's argument for why the president acted legally, both consistent with uh, statutory law and also consistent with the Constitution, in issuing this order? <laughs>
1: The administration's argument begins from the premise that in fact they're not changing the status of any unauthorized immigrants, contrary to what the state of Texas is arguing. They claim that in any enforcement regime, immigration law included, the executive has to be able to make choices about whom to prosecute and whom to not because there are limited resources. And in the immigration setting, that is especially true because there are approximately 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States and Congress appropriates about uh, the money to remove approximately 400,000 of them per year. And they characterize DAPA as a mere forbearance of removal. That's what deferred action is and it's what it's always been. It's a longstanding practice. There are certain uh, benefits that flow from receiving deferred action status, namely authorization to work in the United States and access to Social Security benefits. The government's argument, though, is that Those benefits are ancillary to the decision to forbear removal, and they're actually supported by longstanding statutory and regulatory authorities. And so what that issue here is the president's authority to make enforcement choices in a world of limited resources.
0: Thank you so much for summarizing uh, the administration's argument so well. Josh, what are the arguments that the state of Texas and other states have raised against DAPA? Why do they claim that it's illegal?
2: So Texas has made a number of arguments, but the key argument that came up during the session of the court on Monday where I was there um, has to do with something called lawful presence. Um, The memorandum that announced DAPA, this policy, um, included this one sentence that has been driving the government uh, a batty for the last year or so. And I'll read the sentence because we'll probably be talking about it a lot today. It says, deferred action does not confer any form of legal status in this country much less citizenship. It simply means that for a specific period of time, an individual is permitted to be, quote, lawfully present in the United States. And that was, I think, the sort of uh, a conundrum or enigma, if you will, that confounded uh, Justices Alito, Kennedy, and Roberts yesterday. Um, so at one point uh, on Monday, Chief Justice Robert asks uh the Solicitor General, the top government lawyer, um, he said, you know, is it the government's position that, quote, lawfully present does not mean you're legally present, right? You can be lawfully present but not legally present. And Verily said, correct. And then a few moments later, Just Salito seems somewhat stunned by that answer, says, I don't understand how that's possible in light of the English language. Um, so a lot of this case has to do with whether, in fact, this policy, DAPA, is attempting to grant a lawful presence to people who are otherwise here unlawfully. Um, And if, in fact, that's how the court views the situation, um, then the president was acting beyond his authority uh, uh, that Congress had given him with the immigration laws.
0: Um, Thank you so much for that. I'm glad you seized these words, uh, lawfully present, which are easier to pronounce than prosecutorial discretion, but did... Uh, trip up a number of the justices. Justice Kagan at one point said, well, you could just leave that out of your argument. Couldn't you red pencil it? And Burley said yes. Christina, w- what is the nub of the administration's argument about the distinction between being lawfully present and being illegally present?
1: So the administration's claim is that nothing really turns on that concept of lawfully present. It's an unfortunate piece of language in the guidance that has really taken on Uh, far more significant than it has in the law. It matters because the Social Security benefits that people who receive DACA would be eligible for extend to those who the Attorney General determines to be lawfully present or the Secretary of Homeland Security. And that has been interpreted since 1996 to include people who have deferred action status. But it's essentially the only context in which lawfully present is relevant to what the administration is doing. And there, it's a term of art. So to counter the claim by Justice Alito that this doesn't make sense under the English language, you would say that, as any lawyer understands, sometimes terms become terms of art and have very specific meanings in very specific contexts. But neither the decision to grant deferred action nor the decision to give work authorization has anything to do with the concept of lawful presence. And those are the two pieces of DAPA that are really its crux. And so uh, the Fifth Circuit and then the state of Texas in the Supreme Court has actually been quite ingenious in using that language to try to obfuscate what the case is really about. And, and it may well be that, the, uh, not, that four of the justices accept that characterization, but the government's claim is that, in fact, nothing about what's crucial about DAPA, the deferral of removal or the receipt of work benefits, turns on any concept of lawful presence.
0: Great. OK, Josh, so Christina sort of states the nub of the issue is this disagreement about whether the deferred action and the and the eligibility for work are a legitimate exercise in the president's enforcement discretion. Uh, tell us uh, – originally the, the court had asked the parties to address the question of whether the take care clause of the constitution was being violated and the president wasn't faithfully executing the laws – The court ended up not asking about that, but there's a similar issue um, on the statutory question of whether he's exceeding his legal authority and basically whether or not he's acting in the face of congressional disapproval. Tell us about the challenger's sense that Congress has implicitly forbidden this action and therefore the president is going beyond his legal authority.
2: Sure. And for disclosure, I filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Cato Institute and Professors Randy Barnett and Jeremy Rapkin on this issue. Um, The Constitution imposes a duty on the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, This is not a provision that most law students have ever heard of, let alone studied. Um, And this this has only come up a couple times in the Supreme Court's history. One of the first time was in a case called Kendall versus X-Roll Stokes. And long story short, President Andrew Jackson, who, by the way, just lost his place on on the $20 bill, so adios. Uh, President Andrew <laughs> Jackson um, uh, basically told his postmaster general not to pay a contract fee to a firm that was loyal to John Quincy Adams. And if those history students know, uh, Jackson and Quincy Adams uh, uh, were in an election. And basically, to use a parlance today, in a rigged system, uh, Quincy Adams stole the election. So as retribution, well, I, I,
0: I must. I must interrupt. We're, we're having uh, James Travis coming tomorrow to talk about Quincy Adams, the hero, and I think he'll defend Quincy Adams against I, this scurrilous I, accusation. <laughs> <laughs> but continue, I, please. You
2: know what? We'll be charitable since he just lost his twenty. Okay. So, um, <laughs> and God bless Hamilton staying on the ten. So the short, long, and short of it is that the president told his postmaster general, "Do not enforce this law." Um, and this actually came up to the Supreme Court later during the Van Buren administration. But the Supreme Court, in opinion, said the president can't simply suspend the law. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, the very first two grievances signed across the street from where Jeff sits now, the very first two grievances concerned the King George's power of suspension. So the framers had a very distinct fear that when the executive branch blurs into the legislative branch, and it's no longer just enforcing the laws, but deciding what the content of the laws ought to be, Uh, We have a problem. In The Federalists, they wrote that the blending of the branches is the very definition of tyranny. So uh, this was a big problem in our constitutional discourse, and the court requested briefing on whether the president's DAPA policy violates this duty to faithfully execute the laws. Um, The sad part is, to cut to the chase, there was not a single question asked during 90 minutes of argument about the Take Care Clause. It broke my heart. Not a single question. Perhaps Justice Scalia was interested in it, He's no longer with us. Perhaps Justice Thomas is interested in it. He doesn't ask questions. But the but the Constitution was not even brought up by a single justice.
0: It was indeed a, a sad day for take care junkies. But, uh, Christina, <laughs> uh, much of the texture of the argument did focus on the separation of power as notion. Justice Kennedy at one point said, The whole point is that you've talked about discretion here. What you're doing is defining the limits of discretion, and it seems to me that that is a legislative, not an executive act. Why don't you respond to Josh's uh, take care arguments, explain why the administration thinks there was no violation of the take care clause, and also, conversely, why it acted within its uh, legislative discretion? So the
1: administration has two arguments under the specific take care umbrella, but Most of its arguments related to it acting within the scope of its statutory authority would also be relevant to this analysis. But its its specific take-care arguments are, first, that the duty to see that the laws are executed is a purely executive and political act, and it's not subject to judicial discretion. It's not justiciable. And I don't believe a court has ever found something to be a violation of the take-care clause. And the reason, in this case, why uh, the, the president is faithfully taking care that the laws are, are taking care that the laws be faithfully executed, is that DHS as a whole is zealously enforcing the immigration laws. It's using the appropriations Congress has given it to remove up to 400,000 people uh, a year from the United States who are in violation of the immigration laws, taking into account resource constraints and humanitarian concerns, both of which are vital to the faithful execution of the law. But the judgment about how to go about weighing those factors and whom to remove and under what circumstances really is, according to the administration, and I think this is correct, a political question that the judiciary will have a very hard time managing. So the argument that Texas is making, as Josh suggests, is that what the president and the secretary of homeland security have done is quite different from this resource constraint prioritization but they're actually dispensing with the laws and i think that the the fact that the administration is enforcing the ina vigorously itself is strong evidence that there's no dispensation here and even if we just looked at the specific provisions of the statute that DAPA covers of the removal laws, the administration is not saying that it wouldn't enforce those provisions in particular circumstances where the equity is suggested that that should be enforced, but saying instead that these are low-priority enforcement cases within the context of the statute as a whole.
0: Great. Well, well Josh, certainly uh, the case law um, uh, I, what a wonder! Whose dog is it? Uh, it's so—it's a constitutional uh, dog barking.
2: I, I have no dog in this fight except for my dog. Who uh, I put her in the other room; and you can still hear her. He's—he's—he's <laughs> so, um, he's, uh, he's, he's objecting.
0: He's objecting to Christina's <laughs> argument. You know, so you Jeff, can, <laughs> I,
2: have to make a, I have to make a reference. The yeah. take care clause with his dog that didn't bark. At the Court, <laughs> nice indeed, indeed. As Holmes would say, uh, uh, this issue is lurking in the background because the substantive claim of whether the president has the authority to act. Uh, in many respects overlaps with the take care clause. So I think the long and short of it, the response is Texas is not making the argument that the president is failing to execute the laws altogether. Um, They're not not alleging a complete and total and utter abdication of the immigration laws. That's not been the argument. The argument is instead is that the president is deeming lawful what is otherwise unlawful. And that is why so much focus was put on this language, this lawfully present language in the memorandum. And I want to go back to your comment about the pencil, the red pencil. Um, It's actually striking. We've been here before. Um, In 2012, we had the Affordable Care Act. Congress wrote that something was a penalty. And the Solicitor General told the Chief Justice, wait a minute, construe this as a tax to save it. And he did. In 2015, we had this case called King v. Burwell, where Congress wrote a statute that said subsidies for Obamacare are available in an exchange established by the state. And the government said, well, treat that as an exchange established by the federal government. And they did. So third time's perhaps the charm, the government is asking for a saving construction. But I humbly submit it is not applicable here. While the court has a duty, as John Marshall said many years ago, to find ways to perhaps uphold statutes from Congress— we're not dealing here with a statute from Congress. We're dealing with an executive branch memorandum. Um, Secretary Jay Johnson, the author of the memo, was sitting two rows behind me. If the problem was lawfully present, he could issue a new memo. He does not need the court to do its dirty work for him. Of course, the reason why he won't just strip that language is because the implication of a lawful presence suggests other benefits were attended. It's baked into the uh, DAPA program. So merely striking out the words won't solve this. And that's why I think that's something of a red herring from the red pencil for my red dachshund as well.
0: Oh my goodness, what a spectacular, oh. I, I'll call it a meeting of metaphors, not a mixing of them. <laughs> and I love the dog references, Justice Can- just General Verilli in the oral, oral argument said of the lawfully present uh, argument, that's the tail on the dog and the flea on the tail of the dog." So I think we've brought things back full circle. Christina, I think I'm understanding this now, but I need a little bit of one more beat of help in understanding both what the state's argument about is about how President Obama is making lawful what's unlawful. What is the document or authority that they claim makes this uh, deportation unlawful, and what is the administration's counter for why they're wrong?
1: Well, I'm afraid that the argument that Texas is making that seems to be potentially persuading some of the justices is a factual error. The government is not deeming lawful, unlawful conduct lawful maintains that the people who are here in violation of the immigration laws continue to be in violation of the immigration laws. What's unlawful is being present uh, without status, having either entered without inspection or overstayed a visa. And no one's questioning that, and the administration is not transforming that into lawful conduct. What it's doing is simply forbearing from removing that category of people. I think really what is the source of concern is the – the, the benefits that arise from the decision to defer action, we keep coming back to this, and I think ultimately this is what matters in the case, because otherwise there, there's nothing that turns on the decision um, to, to forbear removal. And the work authorization that becomes a possibility for those who receive deferred action has nothing to do with whether you characterize their presence as lawful or not. That has been in uh, regulation since the 1980s, even before the 1980s, and it's also arguably recognized by Congress in a statute. I think it could certainly be debated whether the statute provides adequate authority to give work authorization to this category of people, but that argument's not really properly raised here, and it's not what DAPA does. DAPA simply forbears removal makes people eligible for deferred action, and then it's these other laws that make people eligible for work authorization. And you see the justices in a couple of instances say, well, why haven't you challenged that? Even Justice Kennedy asks, why haven't you challenged those regulations? And both Texas and the intervener for the House is trying to conflate DAPA with what is really the source of concern for people who think something is amiss here, and that is the, the work authorization.
0: Great. Uh, Josh, what is your response to Christina's uh, claim that the, it, it, it's, it's state uh, regulations, not uh, federal laws that are governing who's eligible for what kind of benefits?
2: Well, I think there, there's two issues here to unpack. So the first issue is it's indeed true, as Christina said, that the authorization for the attorney general to provide um, work authorization to people on this status has been around since the 1980s. And, and that's absolutely true. Um, but What's also true, and Texas made this point yesterday, was that when this regulation was first promulgated, um, the, the, the president, President Reagan, told Congress that the number of people who will receive work authorization is so minuscule, it's not even worth counting. It's such a small number of people. Here we'd have up to five million people, perhaps, gaining this. So I don't think in any respect this is within the consideration of what Congress intended when this, when this, when this regulation first came about and went through the notice and comment process. Um, there's this phrase in administrative law that says, you know, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes, right? Congress doesn't give this massive authority in this sort of generic blasé language. So one of the arguments that Texas has advanced, as have I, um, is that this, this, this isn't supported by the statute. It's, it's an untenuous reading of the statute. Now, the second point concerning uh, state law is that of driver's licenses, which moves a little bit towards standing, um, and the fact is, in Texas, and Texas has had this statute for a number of years, if you're, ha- if you're given some sort of a, 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 a legal presence from the government to be here and you're, you're not a U.S. citizen, but you have some sort of presence, you get a driver's license. And every driver's license issued by Texas carries with it a fee. Believe it or not, as uncomfortable as a DMV may be, uh, they actually don't make you ch- pay for everything that they cost. There's actually a charge in the Real ID Act and otherwise to run background checks. So Texas is arguing that the reason why we're in federal court is because of this injury to the state. Um, and I was actually pleasantly surprised. I was expecting perhaps the chief justice and others to jump all over Texas S.G. Scott Keller on this issue. Um, and I think for the most part, you know, we're, we're down to eight, but four of them are pretty solid on the standing issue and that Texas is basically stuck uh, uh, with their law. They, they, they shouldn't have to change it. And that's sufficient to get them into federal court.
0: Great. Well, uh, Christina, Josh has raised this standing issue at the oral arguments. Chief Justice Roberts rejected General Virilli's argument that Texas has no financial stake in the claim because they could simply change their law to deny drivers licenses to the immigrants. And Roberts said, if they did that, you would sue them instantly. And and Virilli said, I'm not saying we would or wouldn't. And there was an exchange about uh, the fact that that Virilli should say whether or not the federal government would consider that illegal. Unpack that exchange and its relevance to the standing argument more generally and why you think that there uh, there is no standing?
1: So I think what the chief justice is expressing is a skepticism that the federal government is being completely uh, ingenuous here, because it's claiming that Texas could just change its law and decide not to subsidize either driver's licenses generally, or the driver's licenses received by deferred action recipients, or perhaps even those who are recipients of DAPA. And the concern is that were Texas to do that, the federal government would instantly come in and say, states have no authority to make distinctions among immigrant classifications. And so it would be either a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, or it would be preempted by federal immigration law if the state were to try to do that. And the government has made arguments in other lawsuits uh, suggesting that these kinds of distinctions are not for states to make. And so I think that there is some skepticism about whether the claim the government is making is actually fair in some broad sense, even if it's formally, legally correct. We don't know how Texas would change its law. We don't know what the federal government would do in response to that change, but there's some suspicion. I think why this matters is twofold. The first is that there were a lot of commentators leading up to this case who thought that because Chief Justice Roberts has been generally um, skeptical of broad theories of standing and a proponent of narrowing access to the courthouse and a lot of his jurisprudence, that that might be a way out for him here, that he wouldn't have to deal with the more complicated legal authority questions. And because... A standing holding, finding that Texas did have standing here, could open up a flood of litigation. Anytime the federal government does something that has an economic impact on the states, they could tie things up in court and make judges instead of uh, the political branches, the arbiters of a lot of political disagreements. The fact that he was so skeptical during the oral argument of the government's claim is probative of the of what he ultimately will do. I don't think it's dispositive. He may well have been trying to press the government as hard as he could, but ultimately decide that this is too, a bridge too far for standing doctrine. But I do think that it was not good news for the government that he was as skeptical as he was about their claims of the absence of standing on on Texas's part, which ultimately will mean if you have um, four justices who believe that there is standing and four who don't, um, and then four who believe that the government exceeds its authority and four who don't, the Fifth Circuit's decision is affirmed by an equally divided court. And the oral argument seems to suggest that's where we're heading. Uh,
0: Thank you so much for that. Well, Josh, you have studied the lower court Decisions in detail give us uh, some more texture about what would happen if the court divides four to four, and what that would mean for the future of immigration policy.
2: Absolutely. So um, we're in a posture now where we have eight justices. Justice Scalia is no longer with us. Um, in the event that the court ties four to four, which uh, I agree with my my good friend Christina that that looks like that looks like a distinct possibility. What happens is that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision is affirmed. The Fifth Circuit found that. Number one, the states have standing. And number two, DAPA violates various provisions of administrative law. Um, As a result, what happens after that is this case goes back to the district court in Brownsville. Um, This is an odd posture or an odd position for the current case. Um, This is actually an appeal from what is known as a preliminary injunction. That's another word I can never say. Preliminary injunction. Um, uh, I think I got that right. Um, What that basically means is this case hasn't had an evidentiary hearing. This case hasn't had summary judgment, this sort of proceeding uh, to decide whether the case should be dismissed. So, this goes back to Brownsville for either a trial or summary judgment. Um, and that could t- definitely take some time. Um, uh, the long and short of it, Jeff, and I've made this point, uh, uh, I think, on the last program we did, um, is that the fate of the 2016 election will decide the fate of immigration law. Um, if a Republican president wins the election, they, the two leading candidates have both promised to rescind DAPA. The two leading candidates, who are now the only one that actually matters on the Democratic side, um, have said they would expand DAPA. In fact, they've said that they would give deferred action to the parents of the DREAMers, the DACA beneficiaries, even though the Obama OLC has said that was e- illegal. Um, Christina doesn't agree with that, but, but the Justice Department has taken that position. So we're in this space where it doesn't really – I can't say it like that, but what really matters is what happens in the next election. Um, DAPA uh, uh, likely, even if it goes into effect, I'm sorry, even if the court upholds it, say they dismiss on standing, uh, I think it'll be very difficult for President Obama to implement it in its entirety before the election. And, you know, if the policy goes into effect in September, October, and they first start receiving applications, um, and then in November, you know, someone wins who doesn't like this policy, um, I think there'll be a very strong consideration of how this even proceeds, whether people apply at all. I mean... We are now in election season, and based on the posture of this case, we have to look to the next election to decide the future of this executive action.
0: Uh, well put. Christina, are the conservative justices being true to their principles in their tremendous skepticism of DAPA? Um, and an opinion piece on the American Constitution Society website, the libertarian scholar Ilya Somin... Uh, said that DAPA should be constitutional if we accept two principles that many of the policies conservative critics strongly support in other contexts, that the unitary executive and limiting the scope of congressional power as close as possible to its original meaning. Is that a fair criticism or not?
1: So I think that there is some reason to criticize at least Justices Kennedy and Roberts if they find this to be beyond the president's legal authority. In his decision in the United States versus Arizona that basically struck down most of Arizona's immigration law meant to crack down on illegal immigration, Justice Kennedy wrote at length about the importance of executive discretion in enforcing the immigration laws. And in that case, its relevance was to the fact that sometimes the executive decides not to prosecute uh, various immigration offenses, and it's not for the state to come in and decide that that prosecution ought to happen, but will happen at the state level. That theory of the important, crucial role of the executive branch in administering the overall system really should have purchase in this context, too. The fact that the deferral of removal is happening on a large scale, which a lot of the arguments seem to sometimes collapse into, ultimately shouldn't matter because we're talking about an enforcement responsibility that is overwhelming in scale, and this is just one way of managing it. I think the idea of this being consistent with the unitary executive had some appeal. i've I've written with my co-author, Adam Cox, about what really is going on here is the President and the Secretary of Homeland Security and official political officials within the Department of Homeland Security trying to supervise line level officials and make sure that they enforce the immigration laws consistent with the priorities that the leadership of DHS have established, which is to not remove and expend resources on low-priority cases, people with ties to the U.S. and no criminal records, and instead to focus on people who are public safety risks or have committed crimes or uh, serious immigration violations. And so what DOPID does is ensure that those enforcement priorities actually get carried out, which is something that hadn't really been happening to the extent they wanted prior to that. So it's really about control over the executive branch. And in that sense, it really is consistent with the the theory of the unitary executive. I, by contrast, happen to think that Congress actually has quite broad power to regulate here, and there's a great deal Congress could do to restrain the president's enforcement discretion if it wanted to. It just hasn't done that here. Um, And what the president is doing is operating well within the statutory parameters that exist.
0: Great. Uh, Josh, your response to both of Christina's points, first, that conservatives may be being inconsistent in being less than devoted to unitary executive power in this case, and also her suggestion that you know Congress could have repudiated this policy but didn't, and therefore uh, the challengers are overstating the case when they say that the president is acting in the face of congressional disapproval.
2: Well, let, let, let me take the, the second uh, question first, if I may. Um, the House did repudiate this, Uh, the Preventing Executive Overreach and Immigration Act of 2014 passed the House. And that provision said that DAPA was, quote, without any constitutional or statutory basis. Um, So you have a full branch, a full House of the U.S. government, the House of Representatives, saying this is illegal. Now, the question is, why didn't the Congress try to defund DAPA? I describe DAPA like a cockroach or Keith Richards. Nothing can kill it. Um, It's paid for by user fees. Uh, Even if Congress shut down the Homeland Security Department, it would continue. And in fact, the Office of Legal Counsel memorandum announcing DAPA boasted about this saying, Well, it's funded by user fees, so it can't be stopped. So this was crafted after the election in a way that could not be defunded. Uh, This tries to subvert accountability um, at just about every angle. And it's important to stress, DAPA came after the Congress decided not to vote on the president's preferred immigration bill. And after the president had said for years for years that he could not engage in this sort of action. Um, um, indeed, during the oral arguments, um, Chief Justice Roberts quoted the president, and, and this is actually rare of even using a statement from the president, but Chief Justice Roberts said, quote, quoting Obama, then essentially I would be ignoring the law in a way that I think would be very difficult to defend legally. What did Solicitor General Varelli reply? He said, well, the Office of Legal Counsel, you know, reviewed it and gave him a memo. Um, uh, this is a very sanitized account of history. Um, what actually was reported in political and Charlie Savage's book, The Power Wars and elsewhere, is that basically the president was pushing DHS to go further and further with this policy. So this wasn't the case where OLC said, oh yeah, sure you can do this. Uh, uh, this was the president pushing ahead. A- a- and uh, it's clear that when Congress did not give him the authority he wanted, he found uh, 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 the authority you know, in, in the interstices of, of the US code uh, in, in a manner that I think is, is, is like President Obama said... A uh, very difficult to defend legally, and I think now a year and a half later, for the Supreme Court, and the uh, chickens are coming home to roost, and and roosters are red. To continue the theme of the day, nice, uh, <laughs> uh,
0: Chris, cr- Christina. So, um, Aaron Murphy, who representing the House of Representatives, made a similar argument to the one Josh has just made, she said, three years ago, the executive asked Congress to enact legislation that would have given it the power to authorize most of the people that are living in this country unlawfully to stay, work, and receive benefits, and Congress declined. Now the executive comes before this court with the extraordinary claim that it has had the power to achieve the same. How persuasive is it to claim that Congress's refusal to enact legislation that the executive asked for um, should be construed as congressional disapproval?
1: It's not persuasive at all of the legal arguments. First of all, Congress did not enact the statute. Debates happen all the time where people take different sides on an issue, and the failure to enact the statute is legally significant in determining what the scope of the president's authority is. An unenacted statute doesn't limit authority that otherwise exists. I also think it's unpersuasive because what a statute would have done is very different than what the president has done here, and no one in the administration is claiming to do what Congress would have had the power to do or does have the power to do, which is to confer actual legal status, a path to permanent residency that would entitle people to remain in the United States, would no longer make them deportable for the same reasons, and would entitle them to certain procedural rights in defending their right to be in the United States. So nothing in DAPA does any of that. And so the idea that the failure to pass a statute like that somehow means that the president can't do something that's lesser than that and is also within the authorities the executive has traditionally exercised doesn't make any sense.
0: Josh, what's your response? We know uh, podcast listeners uh, know uh, from We the People of Justice Jackson's famous opinion. Yes, yes. This happened last time. Ladies and gentlemen, when we were having this great debate at the National Constitution Center, I raised the magic words Justice Jackson's opinion and and Josh said, I was just about to mention it. So uh, great minds think alike. Um, Josh, Josh knows the question I'm about to ask is whether Justice Jackson, who said that the president's power is at its highest ebb when it's supported by Congress, at its lowest ebb when it acts in the face of congressional disapproval, and in a zone of twilight when Congress isn't clear. How does that apply to this case? And, and, and what's your response to Christina's case, uh, claim that when Congress doesn't speak, that's not the lowest uh, category? Um, it, it's in the zone of twilight or, or at, at, at a higher level?
2: This, this, we're not in Rod Sterlingland. Sterling we are low below. We are well below the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so, 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 if I can give the facts of Youngstown briefly, um, during the high of the Korean War, President um, Truman uh, had a problem. The steel industry was poised to go on strike, and if the steel industry had gone on strike, uh, uh, the war effort in Korea would have been impaired. So, President Truman did what any president would do. He said, "Okay, I'm going to nationalize the steel industry." And put it under the supervision of my secretary of commerce, uh, Secretary of Commerce Thomas Sawyer. Um, do I have the authority to do it? Uh, whatever. I'm the president. I'm going to do it. So it's interesting is that after he did it, he sent a note to Congress, and Congress took no action. And then shortly thereafter, Truman sent another note to Congress, and Congress again took no action. So this goes to, to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court finds that uh, 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 this action was illegal but the concurring opinion by justice jackson is what we all study and remember and what justice jackson said was here we had a situation where congress expressly declined to give the president the authority he requested truman requested this power and congress said no but the other opinion which people think of even less is that of justice frankfurter and justice frankfurter who knew a thing or two about government made a big deal on how does congress react after the fact does congress object do they hold hearings do they hold resolutions so it's simply not the case that an unenacted bill is irrelevant. We look to what Congress does to assess the separation of powers and uh, uh, identify which zone of, uh, of interest we're in. Uh, to use another case, a case called Dames and Moore against Reagan. This was a case where President Reagan tried to use executive power to freeze all of these um, uh, 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 lawsuits against the uh, Iranian government. Um, and after Reagan took this action, members of Congress actually praised this thing. Wow, this is a good idea. And it is an opinion for the court written by Chief Justice Rehnquist and, oh, by the way, his law clerk that term, John Roberts, uh, in the opinion by Rehnquist, uh, he said it's important. And we look to the fact that Congress actually endorses afterwards when a hearings. So the fact that a whole House of Representatives votes to say that this is illegal and then authorizes an attorney to argue a case that this is illegal uh, tells me we are in zone three. Now, the fact that we're in zone three doesn't mean the president loses, but it means, a court scrutinizes it closely which is why I think this sort of uh, uh, a rigorous review is warranted for this unprecedented action uh, 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 that was taken um, by President Obama uh, about a year and a half ago.
0: Wonderful. Christina, do you believe that the president is in uh, zone three, as Josh puts it, the lowest ebb of his power? Do you think he is in the zone of twilight because Congress isn't clear? Do you think he's at the highest ebb? Uh, where is he in this case?
1: I think it's very clear that he's not at the lowest ebb. There is no statute that prohibits the president from doing what he's doing. In the case of the steel seizures, there were statutes that various justices on the court point to as precluding the president's authority to do what he did. The state of the law, as it is today, permits the president and the Secretary of Homeland Security to do what they are doing. Even Texas, even Texas agrees that the federal government can forbear from removing classes of non-citizens who do not fall within their enforcement priorities. Uh, Justice Kagan pressed the state on that, and they essentially conceded, as well as in their brief. Their beef is with, again, the work authorization, but that work authorization is authorized by statute and has been subject to notice and comment rulemaking. The regulation that implements it, has been subject to notice and comment rulemaking. So nothing that the House on its own could do could... To, could do away with that legal framework. As Josh well knows, a single House of Congress does not make law. Sure, it is uh, interesting to know what Congress thinks about it, what a House of Congress might think about it, and they might have views about the state of the law before the president took his actions or that authorized or don't authorize the president's actions. And we might take their statements about what the law as it exists now permits. And I think that's why the Supreme Court permitted the House of Representatives to intervene in the case and why Aaron Murphy argued for the House of Representatives. But their position is just a position. It is not the law. And what matters is the meaning of the law under which the president acted. And I I think that if we look at both what's understood as his enforcement discretion that the state of Texas accepts, and the statutory sources of authority for the work authorization, and even the Social Security benefits, we're there on the highest ebb. We're talking about things that have been authorized by Congress and traditional executive powers. And so there's, not, there's no question that we're not in the, in the lowest ebb here. But as this podcast suggests, and as the oral argument suggests, So much of this case is about the framing. It really depends on how the justices choose to frame the case, how advocates on one side or the other choose to frame the case. And when you buy a frame, you then buy the the results. Um,
0: Uh, Well well put, Josh, a response to Christina, and then we'll have closing arguments. The the framing has somewhat changed. Uh, Many observers were surprised when the court asked... The parties to brief the question of whether the president had violated his constitutional constitutional, forgive me, listeners, uh, authority under the take care clause, and then that proved not to be central to the oral argument. Where instead the focus was on this notion of lawful presence. Describe the evolution of the arguments of those who are challenging this action and how they relate to what's clearly a broader skepticism on the part of the conservative justices and the challengers about President Obama's use of executive orders.
2: So this action, um, DAPA, um, has taken on a much greater, to use Justice Breyer's words, um, political valence um, and, and actually one of the lawyers representing the interveners for the petitioners, uh, uh, Mr. Sions from the MALDEF group. Um, he basically said that Governor Abbott um, uh, brought this case. So uh, then Attorney General Abbott brought this case because of political opposition to the policy. Um, I'm not going to quibble with that here. Um, but what I think is important to stress is that the separation of powers endures from president to president. And, and I'll leave this for your loyal listeners. Whatever powers over immigration that the current president asserts, the next president can assert them in the exact opposite direction. If indeed it's true that Congress has not set any priorities with respect to immigration in many areas, and that's what Adam and Christine have written in one of their uh, excellent Yale Law Journal articles, if indeed that's true, then the next president doesn't have to give any discretionary relief, and he could rescind it and roll it back and decide to exclude groups on various premises that may be very uncomfortable. And no one would have standing to challenge that because it's indeed purely discretionary. Um, it's a very different world when the shoe is on the other foot. Um, my my passion for the Constitution, I mean, I think I mentioned this when I was at Philadelphia last time, but um, I support President Obama's immigration policies. I'm in this awkward spot where I agree with him and I wish these bills would have passed, but they didn't. Um, from my perspective, what endures from generation to generation is the separation of powers. The actual policy issue, which affects real people, and I I, I frankly see that. There were thousands of people in the street in D.C. the other day um, demonstrating outside. Um, I see that. But the separation of powers must endure. And and to quote Justice Jackson um, uh, in his last sentence of his last paragraph in Youngstown, he said, quote, it is the duty of the court to be last and not first to give up the separation of powers." This was a man who had prosecuted Nazis at Nuremberg. Um, He was speaking uh, from a very different perspective than we are today, but his timeless words, with the courts being the last, not the first, I hope guide the justices in the resolution of this fundamental and foundational case.
0: Beautiful. That was so eloquent. Uh, that it could serve as a closing argument, but I am going to give each of you just a brief... uh, I'm going to wave it. She can have it. She can have it. (laughs) Uh, Oh, nicely nicely put. Uh, uh, Christina, last words to you. Why is this case as important, and why do you believe that the president has not exceeded his legal authority in deferring deportation?
1: So I think something that Josh said gets to what the debate is about, if not the case, and that's that the next president to change his mind about DAPA uh, and about the things that flow from DAPA. So that's correct, and it's within the enforcement discretion of the president to change his mind about how to enforce the law, and that is thoroughly consistent with the separation of powers. Any grandiose concept of separation of powers you want to put forward accepts the authority of the president to make these kinds of choices. But it's precisely because the next president could change his mind, and a Republican president probably would change his mind, that there's such a pitched battle over this issue, why you see thousands of protesters. We've here been mostly concerned with the legal claims, and those legal claims are crucial to the ability of the government to function, the ability to exercise enforcement discretion, to supervise lower-level officials. And essentially, to implement your vision of how the law ought to be enforced through different structures within the executive branch will be essential to any president and is a really important element of preserving the executive's proper place within the separation of powers. And so it's important to fight about these questions and to get it right. But I also think it's important to understand that at stake is the debate about what to do about these millions of people who are here unauthorized, many of whom have ties to U.S. citizens and also permanent residents or have otherwise been here for such long periods of their lives that they are, in fact, functionally Americans. And so I think Josh is correct. This will be an important issue in the next election, not just because of the legal authority questions, but because the way that the legal authority is being debated here really matters to the lives of people and to the future of the country. And so it's a a nice way in which constitutional law and the import of immigration law and policy intersect. And fortunately, the authority of the president happens to coincide with the humanitarian objectives of the advocates in this particular case.
0: Thank you so much, Christina Rodriguez and Josh Blackman, for an illuminating, engaging, and civil debate on this complicated and important case. Our listeners and I now better understand the stakes, both legal and constitutional. And for that, we are grateful to both of you. Christina, Josh, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you
2: so much, Jeff. And thank you, Christina. It's always a pleasure.
0: Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg, Lana Ulrich, and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitutionctr. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the National Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to
2: learn more.